You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi, everybody. David Guzik here for another Thursday afternoon YouTube Live question and answer program. Uh, if we haven't been introduced before, I am a pastor and a Bible teacher. I'm sending this out now from my home in Santa Barbara, California. And on Thursday afternoons, we get together and I simply answer Bible questions. I begin with a question that's come in through social media or a comment on the YouTube channel or email or whatever. And then also after that, we just take whatever questions come up in the chat window. Uh, if you know me or my work, maybe it's from uh, the fact that I have an online Bible commentary through the entire Bible that's available on my own website, EnduringWord.com. It's also available on the website Blue Letter Bible, uh, blueletterbible.org, blb.org, which is a tremendous Bible study resource site. My Bible commentary is available in several different languages. The entire commentary is available in Spanish. I'm happy to say that right now we're going through the Spanish commentary and proofreading it, improving it, uh, just giving it a second set of eyes upon every bit. And that's a long process, but we're making our way through it. And I'm also happy to say that we have uh, the commentary translated into other uh, languages such as Arabic and Chinese and Russian and German, but those are not the complete Bible. Uh, some we have more than others, but we're just working to make the Bible commentary available in the most significant, most used translations and languages of the world. Um, so I want to get to our initial question here today, our lead question. And it comes from Nete, who writes and asks this question. And I would just summarize the question as this, did Jesus forgive Judas? Here's the question from Nete. Here we go. Hello, Pastor David. When Jesus was on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Do you think that forgiveness also applied to Judas? Well, Netta, thank you for your question. And I think that's a great question because it really is an interesting thing. Was Judas forgiven? And how broad was it when Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? Um, first of all, let's just understand here that um, what a remarkable thing it was for Jesus to say those words. There he is at the very moment of his crucifixion. And Luke chapter 23, verse 34 records those words for us. At the very moment of his crucifixion, there is Jesus, despite his great agony, crying out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. It just shows me in a very powerful way that the love of Jesus actually never fails. That on the cross, he prayed even for those who were executing him, asking God the Father not to hold that sin against them. Now, I would expect, though we don't have any specific scripture on this, but I would expect that Jesus probably prayed in this manner for his enemies all throughout his ministry. And this prayer was heard from Jesus right now, and it was noted by Luke because he had no quiet place to pray. I can just simply imagine 
that as Luke, the gospel writer, interviewed a people in the making of his gospel, somebody who was there at the cross said, I'll never forget when I heard Jesus say this, when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And in doing this, Jesus fulfilled his own command. I mean, Jesus himself told us, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, he told us to love our enemies, to pray for those who curse you, and to do good for those who hate you, and to pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. And Jesus was doing what he told us to do when he said those great words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So again, I think this is significant. Now, the question is, how broadly did that prayer apply? And I think we need to understand this, that this prayer did not apply to every sin of every person. Jesus was not pronouncing a general forgiveness for everybody who had ever sinned against him. No, I believe that what Jesus did right here in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, was he was simply saying, Lord, these people who are doing the work of executing me right now, they don't know what they're doing. Lord, be compassionate to them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, I would say that Judas is not included in that prayer. I would say that Judas was not forgiven. He was the son of perdition. That's a great phrase that we find. I don't know how other Bible translations have it. I know it's that way in the King James Bible and the New King James Bible, but it's an old word, perdition, but it's a powerful word. What perdition means is destruction. When Jesus called him the son of destruction, he means that Judas is a man who will be completely and absolutely sent to destruction. He is the son of it. By the way, that same phrase, son of destruction, that phrase that so powerfully communicates, if I could say it very frankly to you, it communicates the damnation of Judas, his condemnation and damnation. That phrase is also used of the person that we commonly, though imprecisely, call the Antichrist. You'll find that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Now, I want you to understand that even though Judas was this man appointed to destruction at the same time, Jesus loved Judas. John chapter 13, verse 26, describes how at what we call the Last Supper, Jesus gave Judas the favored portion of the meal. It was a piece of bread that was dipped in the juices of the meat. And he ceremonially gave that in front of all the other disciples to Judas to express his love, his favor, his compassion to Judas, even though Jesus knew that Judas was about to betray him. He's saying, Judas, I love you. Before you go out and commit this act of betrayal, would you please know that I love you and that it's not too late for you to turn back if you only would? But of course, Jesus knew that Judas would not do that. And that though Jesus loved Judas, 
Judas did not receive that love, and he turned against Jesus. So those words, for they know not what they do, they could apply to many people. They could apply to the Roman soldiers. They could apply to many people at the mob and the onlookers of Jesus's crucifixion there on that day at Golgotha. Perhaps that phrase, forgive them for they know not what they do, perhaps it even applied to some among the religious leaders. But I'll tell you this, for they know not what they do does not apply to Judas. Judas lived with and walked with Jesus for three years. And he is a man who knew what Jesus was about. These Romans who crucified Jesus, they sinned in ignorance. But Judas sinned with full knowledge. You, you could even say that perhaps because of this statement of Jesus, Father, forgive them that they know not what they do, that those Roman soldiers who executed Jesus, even if they were forgiven the sin of executing Jesus, it doesn't mean that they're going to heaven. It would mean that they would certainly be guilty of many other sins that would not be forgiven unless they came to Jesus in faith and repentance and received the forgiveness that he so freely offered because of his work on the cross. So back to Judas. The forgiveness that Jesus spoke of in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That forgiveness did not apply to Judas because he did not want it. He did not receive it by faith. He was not one of the ignorant who didn't know what he was doing. And Judas was not forgiven because he did not receive it by faith. Judas was the son of destruction, and he was destroyed by his sin. What a terrible, terrible tragedy. You know, you can make a contrast between Judas and Peter. There's a sense in which both of them denied Jesus. Both of them turned their back upon Jesus, but one was forgiven and the other was not. Why was Judas not forgiven? And why was Peter forgiven? Because Peter humbly confessed his sin and repented of it and came to Jesus. It's not that the sin of Judas was too big for Jesus to forgive. It's that he would not come to Jesus to receive the forgiveness of it. So uh, did that forgiveness that Jesus spoke of in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, apply to Judas? No, it did not. Judas is the son of perdition, the son of destruction, and he lives in eternal destruction because of his great sin. All right, Nete, I hope that helps you. Glad to answer that question. Let me now go to our chat window and take a look here at some of the things that have come in and see how I may be able to reply to them. Laney says, I have heard that the unforgivable sin isn't a one-time statement against the Holy Spirit. However, Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37, and Mark chapter 30 seem to contradict this teaching. Can you provide clarification? Okay, Laney, let me just explain it to you this way, and I understand your question. I would say this. If those passages, Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37, and Mark chapter 3, verse 30, if those were the 
only passages in the Bible that spoke of forgiveness, maybe we would have reason to say that if somebody says one statement that denies Jesus, or more specifically, attributes the working of Jesus to the working of Satan, if somebody says that once, then they can never be forgiven. But here's the issue, and this is what our job is as those who take the whole Bible seriously and don't use one verse to cancel out another verse. We are given the responsibility to say, okay, how do these different passages correlate? And there are so many other passages that speak of the freeness of God's forgiveness if we will come to him by faith, in faith and repentance. If we come to him in faith and repentance, then our sins will be forgiven. Therefore, it really leads us to believe that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a settled rejection of Jesus that will not come to him for the forgiveness of sins. So our job isn't to take scriptures, passages in isolation, and then sort of um, pit them against other passages of scripture, but rather to bring them together and say, okay, how does God want make us want us to make sense of these as a whole? So I would agree with you. If those passages in Matthew 12 and Mark 3 were the only passages we had that speak of forgiveness, then we might have reason to think of it but we have to bring them alongside these other passages that speak of the freeness of the forgiveness of Jesus, even to those who have committed the most heinous sins, if they will come to Jesus in faith and repentance. Therefore, we can't imagine Jesus saying to somebody who wants to come to him in faith and repentance, of a sin of speaking against Jesus? Well, no, we can't imagine Jesus saying, no, I won't receive you. Sorry, you said what you said. And it doesn't matter that your heart wants forgiveness. It doesn't matter that your heart wants repentance. Um, I will not receive it because of what you said, you know, two years ago or whatever it is. So, uh, Lainey, I hope that explains that for you. Uh, it really is a matter of taking this passage and bringing it alongside other passages in the Bible, especially the New Testament, that speak of forgiveness. And the fact that Jesus said in another place, I'm sorry, I don't have this memorized as to chapter and verse, but Jesus said, he who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. So Jesus didn't say, except if you've spoken against me five years ago. So again, the mere fact, all this puts together makes us believe that this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a settled rejection of what the Holy Spirit says about Jesus and the refusal to come to him. Hope that helps you there, uh, Lainey, or at least clarifies my thinking on this. Sean, good to see you. Uh, Calvary Arlington, good to see you as well this afternoon. Christana asks, uh, Matthew chapter 18, verse 16 says, to take with you one or two witnesses. Who qualifies as a witness? How do you gather witnesses without seeming to gossip or murmur? What do you do if no one is willing to be a witness? Um, well, Christana, I don't know if I can answer the last part of your question. What do you do if no one is willing to be a witness? Uh, but I think I can tell you who qualifies as a witness. 
I would just say someone who is, first of all, a believer, preferably, of course, and someone who has a level of spiritual maturity, someone who can discern what's right and what's wrong. I mean, isn't that what we're asking people to do when we ask them to be witnesses? We're asking them to discern what's right and what's wrong in a particular situation. So I think that's the qualification. But as far as how do you gather witnesses without seeming to gossip or murmur, I would just simply say this. If you're, if you're concerned about that, and that's a good thing to be concerned about, when you ask somebody to be a witness in a dispute that you have with another person, don't tell them your case in advance. Just go to them and say, hey, I've got a dispute with brother so-and-so. We can't seem to resolve it. Um, would you be willing to be a witness about it? And I only want to tell you what the dispute is about in the presence of this other person. Because really, that's what it means. It means that the person who's going to be a witness is truly a witness of the dispute as a whole, and they're not merely a witness of your side of the dispute. I think that's what's important. So just don't tell them your side of the story until you're in the presence of the person uh, with whom you have the dispute. That way, you if you say something that really the other person thinks isn't fair or accurate, they can say, no, 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 that's not how it happened. If you're concerned with fairness on this and not giving way to gossip or murmuring, I think that's the way to do it. Um and hopefully, if you're connected with a group of Christians, you should be able to find somebody who's willing to be a witness to this dispute, uh, because I think that's an important thing for Christians to be able to work out the disputes that are among them uh, and to do it in fairness and in um, biblical wisdom. So I hope that helps you there, Christana. Thanks for your question. Sean, good to hear from you. Here's the uh, question from Sean. Do you think that when King Nebuchadnezzar went insane in Daniel 4, that it was because God took his image out of him, making him to be no better than a beast? Heard that before. What do you think? Okay, Sean, I would say this. Kind of. I don't know if it's even possible to remove the image of God from a human being. It's possible to cover it over. It's possible to deface it, so to speak, but I don't think it can be removed. I think it is what we would say is intrinsic to our human nature. It is part of what, it's, it's almost like saying this, how do you take a human being and make them no longer a human being? So I don't think that Nebuchadnezzar's um, status as an image bearer of God, that's kind of a common phrase today, I don't think that was removed, but surely it was covered over by the foolish delusion that he was not a man, but he was a beast. That, that's the way I think of it. I, I think of the image of God within human beings being something like this. It's like a beautiful statue because the image of God within a person is beautiful. But what the world, the flesh, and the devil all work together to do is to deface that statue. They can't destroy the statue, but they can spray, you know, spray paint all over. They can vandalize the statue. They can hang things over. They can try to cover it over. They can try to make it invisible. 
but they can't destroy it. They can't take it away because that is intrinsic to the human being. So, Sean, I, I hope that um, clarifies it for you. I, I think that this is more a defacing or a corrupting of the appearance of the image of God, not a taking it away. Okay, a Christian asked the question, says, Hi, Pastor David. During the millennium, will evangelism still be necessary? That's an interesting question, Christian. I just taught a Sunday service for Calvary Chapel Mountain Springs in Calgary, uh, Alberta, online this last Sunday. And as part of that, uh, I taught about the millennium because they're doing a series on eschatology. And I would say, yes, evangelism will be necessary during the millennium. Now, look, I, I want to freely acknowledge that among people in our Christian family, there are all sorts of opinions regarding the millennium. There's people who really love Jesus and really take the Bible seriously who think that we're in the millennium right now. Now, I have to say that um, I think that's not accurate at all. I think that particular point is a little bit weird. But, but again, I, I don't want to diminish or break. There are people who have all different kinds of opinions about the millennium. I regard the millennium as something that is literal, although sometimes it's described in symbolic language, but it's largely literal, and that it's going to happen upon this earth when it is brought into a period of time where the earth is directly ruled by Jesus Christ and by his agents on earth. Now, I think that the population of the millennial earth, the citizens, so to speak, of the millennial earth, I think that not all of them will be born again. And therefore, I would say, yes, evangelism will be necessary during the millennium. Uh, if you want more on that, you can go to my teaching on it on the website, and I think that can give you more understanding. Um, Luciana says, hi, Pastor David. Thank you for your videos. Always a blessing indeed. Well, Luciana, you're very welcome. Happy to do that. I'm very blessed by what God seems to be doing with the YouTube channel. Um, it's just another way for me to help get out God's word and um, whatever to uh, to use whatever gifting. And I, I don't want to hide whatever light God has given me under a bushel. And here's just a way of uncovering it. So anyway, Carmel asks, how can I explain celebrity religious leaders or TV personalities to non-believers? Some evangelicals see them as almost as popes. See Acts the Samaritans thought of Simon as the power of God. Carmel, I, I guess I would just explain it as this, is, you know, when we become Christians, there is a genuine transformation of life that happens. It's, it's real. But the changes that happen to our life, they don't all happen at once. And they are not complete until we're glorified, until we die or go to heaven. They're not complete until that day. Therefore, that's all that to say this. Christians still sin. And the idolization of Christian celebrities, it's a sin. And you might even say that it's a foolish sin. Now, it's a sin that in some ways is understandable. 
because our whole culture is about the idolization of celebrities. We are so into that in our modern culture. It's not um, a compliment about us in the modern culture, but it's true about us. We have to admit that. So uh, we would just simply say that though it doesn't say a good thing about us, it's a real thing that Christians aren't perfect yet. And we would pray that God would continue to sanctify us. And Christians who are given over to celebrity culture, whether they idolize the celebrities of the world and the common culture, or whether they idolize the celebrities of Christian culture, they, they need to not be what we would just simply say, they need to be not so worldly in that regard. So that, that's what I would simply say. And I, I, I think I understand what you mean. Thanks for that. Uh, Jorge, I'm sorry to say your question's in Spanish. If somebody on our uh, feed can translate that, maybe I can get to it. Jane says, hi, Pastor David. In God's plan of the ages, you say that you believe our generation will see the return of Jesus. Do you still think that in spite of the many unfulfilled prophecies? Jane, that is a great question. Yes, I do believe it. But Jane, let me explain why I believe our generation will see the return of Jesus. Okay, I believe that the Bible describes a particular political environment, economic environment, a cultural environment, and especially a spiritual environment that will mark the last days, the very last days, let's say that. that, that period of time right before the glorious return of Jesus. And I believe that as I look around in the world today, I see that our present day fits the description of the kind of political, economic, cultural, and spiritual scenario that the Bible says will mark the last days. I see that more true now. Um, than ever. Okay, so that leads me to believe, yes, the coming of Jesus could be very close. Now, somebody could say, well, yes, but the conditions will be even closer a hundred years from now. Maybe so, but but I, I would be a fool for failing to recognize that the stage is set. Now, your question, Jane, is very good. What about unfulfilled prophecies? What about things that don't seem to line up with the prophetic scenario, this is what I remember. And brothers and sisters, we've seen it in this last six months. I have seen in my lifetime how quickly things can change in the world. This was first presented to me in the late 1980s when I saw, and those of you who are around and of age to see it, you understand this as well. When I saw the world change before my eyes with the fall of communist nations in Europe. Things that people thought would not happen for decades happened in a matter of months. And we were astounded at how quickly the world could change. Things that we thought would take decades to change happened in what seemed to be weeks. I never forgot that. And listen, we see that in the world today right now. 
Things are changing in the world today. Things that we thought might take years and years to change are changing so quickly. So I would just say this, Jane, the things that don't currently match the prophetic scenario, those things can change to match the prophetic scenario very, very quickly. Now, I'll give you, th that's two reasons. I, I see it matching the end time scenario right now. Secondly, the things that don't match can change very quickly. The third reason I believe that Jesus is coming in this generation, I'll tell you why, is because I think that's what Jesus wants us to believe. I think that Jesus wants every generation to believe that Jesus is coming in their generation. I think it is a good and healthy thing for us to believe that Jesus Christ is coming soon. Look, not with crazy predictions of dates, not with panic, not with fear. No, no, none of that. But Jesus wants us to believe that he's coming soon. Jesus does not want us to believe that our master delays his coming, to use a biblical phrase that Jesus used in a parable he told with analogies to his return. No, Jesus wants his people. And I think that throughout the centuries, Jesus has given some reason to every generation to believe that he was coming soon because Jesus wants us to keep that anticipation close at hand. Not in a crazy way, of course, but in an earnest, God-honoring way. I uh, hope that answers your question there, Jane. Okay, listen, as for the question from Jorge, how you wish this was in Spanish, hey, blessings to you, brother. Um, Maybe someday we can get these translated into Spanish. Um, we'll work on that. I am very grateful that my entire Bible commentary is translated into Spanish, and I believe that that's a help to Spanish. By the way, if you know Spanish-speaking believers, let them know about the Bible commentary at EnduringWord.com. They can find it. They can use it. It'll be of use to them. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, I hope we can do more and more to be a blessing to our dear Spanish-speaking brothers and sisters. Uh, let me continue on here. Um, William says, he also never spoke against it, and he gave this all of Saul's wives. Okay, William, I think maybe I missed a question of yours. Um, I'll just come back to it maybe at another time. Jose says, uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, mentions the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, and Christ in us. Are these three terms the same? Well, Jose, I'm going to give you a just off-the-cuff, so to speak, immediate answer. Maybe if I thought about this more, I'd give you a different answer. But my immediate reaction is yes. When the Bible talks about the Spirit of Christ, it's not talking about a different person than the Holy, of, Holy Spirit. And when we talk about Christ dwelling in us, we usually mean that as Christ dwelling in us through the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. So in all of these things, my quick reaction to your question, Jose, would be yes. In Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, when it speaks of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, and Christ in us, it's speaking of the same thing. Uh, God, you could even say the triune God dwelling in us 
by the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. Um, yeah, that, that's my immediate answer. Maybe upon further reflection, I'd give a different answer, but th that's my immediate reaction. Tara asked the question, God bless you and your ministry. Let me go back to the question there. I missed it. Does the belief that the father turned his face away conflict with the truth that Yeshua did not cease to be God uh, on the cross? Also in Luke chapter 23, 45, Yeshua said um, that he went to the father and not to hell. Why do some people say that he went to hell? Thank you for explaining these things. Okay, Tara, let me explain this. We just need to understand that there was something gloriously complex happening at the cross. And I'll explain it to you to the best of my understanding. But, but I realize we are treading on holy ground here and ground that we admit in some ways goes beyond our ability to fully understand. So let me speak to that here in this point. On the cross, God treated the Son as if he were a sinner. And the Father turns his face away, so to speak, from sinners. He does not have full fellowship with sinners. At the same time, Jesus did not become a sinner on the cross because his bearing of sin, his standing in our place as our substitute, our propitiation, that was the most holy act of sacrificial love that the world has ever seen. So we have this thing that is, I'm not going to say it's a contradiction, not at all, but it's complicated. We have the Father treating the Son as if he were a sinner at the very moment that the Son is performing the most holy act of love that can ever be imagined. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians. He described Jesus as he who became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, Jesus did not become a sinner, but he did, as it were, become sin. It's an amazing, amazing thing. So um, this is the uh, great testimony of what happened on the cross. So um, in this, Jesus most definitely did not cease to be God on the cross. Listen, if you can stop being God, you were never God to begin with. One of the characteristics of God is that he's unchanging. And so Jesus, in his divine nature, could never change. In his human nature, he could change. But in his divine nature, he could never change. And he could never stop being God. Now, what you say about Jesus going to hell, there are scriptural passages that suggest they're not entirely clear that Jesus went to Hades. I would say it's not hell in the sense it's not the lake of fire. But it's important. 
first of all, there's differing understandings of those passages among believers. But even if we were to grant that Jesus did, in fact, go to Hades, he did not go there as a victim. He went there as a victor, as a conqueror. The price was paid at the cross, not in Hades and certainly not in hell or the lake of fire. No way. When Jesus said, it is finished at the cross, he meant it. And our sins were paid for there. So Tara, I think this uh, might help you understand a little bit better, at least my perspective on something that is complicated. Jesus remained God's holy one on the cross, even though the Father treated him as if he were a sinner, which pained the Father to do as well. But at the same time, the Father was pleased to see his Son perform this holy work. There's not contradictions at the cross, but there are some complicated things. Hope that helps you. Okay, uh, Agnes says, Hi, Pastor David. Do you think Mary, the mother of Jesus, remained a virgin until her death? I thought that Jude and James were his brothers. Uh, Agnes, let me just say that I, I would disagree respectfully with the Roman Catholic teaching that Mary remained a virgin until her death. Um, I would disagree with this because of what seems to be the teaching of Scripture regarding the marriage of Mary and Joseph, which seems to imply that they did have marital relations after uh, Jesus was born, and by the statement that Jesus had brothers— now, technically, we would call them half-brothers because they shared the same mother, Mary, but they did not share the same father. However, it's important to realize that there are some people, the Roman Catholics say that these were either Jesus's cousins or the brothers, the sons of Joseph from a previous marriage. I don't buy it. I don't think that's a necessary interpretation. <clears throat> and I would just simply respectfully disagree with this relatively late doctrine, if you study the history of this doctrine of the um, uh, perpetual virginity of marriage, uh, of Mary, that's what they call it, you, you would see that uh, it is a late doctrine. And uh, I, I don't believe that it's a biblical doctrine. It's taught by tradition in the Roman Catholic Church, not by the scriptures themselves. Um, let me continue on. Uh, Conservative A, it says, Greetings, Pastor. I'm looking for a book on the Council of Nicaea and what gave the Reformers the authority to remove the Apocrypha. Catholics claim they altered what the Bible was until 1500. Help. Okay, uh, I'm going to look up here at my uh, thing. I don't see the book immediately, but the book you want here is called a General Introduction to the Bible by Geisler and Nix. Uh, that will give you a great history of these different things having to do with the formation of the Bible. It's a great book that I'd recommend to anybody. It's an older book, but it's still great. Again, it's titled A General Introduction to the Bible by Geisler and Nix. I'm going to take one more look here and just see if I can see it on my shelf so I can show you 
my particular copy, but for some reason I can't see it up on my shelf. But it is a great book that I highly recommend, A General Introduction to the Bible by Geisler and Nix. Uh, so yeah, look, look that up. I think that's really the source of your questions. Um, that's not going to tell you so much about the Council of Nicaea, but uh, Philip Schaff in his church history, he also has a book on the creeds and the councils. I think that'll give you good background information. Also, a great general book on church history is Bruce Shelley's Church History in Plain Language. However, I think that the best church history that I recommend to people is, again, looking behind me, um, uh, Kenneth Scott Latterett's A History of Christianity. This two-volume set is an outstanding history, and it's good just to have in hand. You can get it in cheap versions, I think, relatively inexpensive, and you can look up the Council of Nicaea in this particular book. Hope that helps you there, um, A. Jennifer says, blessings, Pastor. Question, looking at the full armor of God in Ephesians 6, I'm confused by the fact that God himself would even need to wear armor at all, as described in Isaiah chapter 59. Well, uh, Jennifer, I don't think the idea there so much is that God needs to wear armor, as that it's given there to present God as a warrior. You know, we need to get away from the idea that God is only presented in the scriptures in these warm, um, soft sort of pictures. You know, the shepherd, the father, I don't know, the friend, whatever. No, look, I'm not saying that those are inaccurate pictures of God. It's just if you take those pictures of God to the exclusion of everything else that the Bible says, you have an incomplete picture of God. And the Bible also presents God in the Old and the New Testaments as a warrior. And really, that's just simply the idea. When, when God is wearing armor in Isaiah, it's not like God needs it, so to speak. But God has it because it's the uniform of the warrior. And, and something to think about here is that God has this armor and he gives us his armor. When it says, take on the armor of God, uh, I think it's interesting to think that it's not only the armor God supplies, but it's God's own armor. It's the armor that just indicates that he is a warrior as well. So that's the simple way I would explain that, Jennifer. Uh, GMS says, can you explain Isaiah chapter 14, verses one through three. Well, let me do that. And I'm going to do that by first looking over on the Enduring Word app. Uh, I don't know if you're aware, but um, we have an app uh, for your iPhone or for your Android, uh, the Enduring Word, and you can access my Bible commentary through that. We're always looking to make improvements to the app. And we're looking in the future to find improvements to include audio and visual, uh, audio and video links on the app. But this is a handy way to get to my commentary in a quick form. I'm happy to say that by this point, we probably have more than 100,000 downloads of our app in the iOS platform. And I don't know, maybe 30 or 40,000, maybe more downloads in the um, Android platform. Of course, it's completely free. Just go to the iTunes store or to the Google Play store, wherever you get your apps and look it up. 
Uh, the first three verses of Isaiah chapter 43 uh, speak really primarily of the judgment that God will bring upon Babylon, this uh, kingdom that will afflict Israel. It, it's in the future in Isaiah's day. It's in the past, of course, in our own day. But the nation that afflicted Israel so greatly, God would judge them, in fact. And as well, um, at the gladness that the people of God would have, that that judgment would come. So really, that is the, the framework which leads into the prophecy that speaks to the spiritual power behind Babylon and that Satan or Lucifer, the day star himself, that's in the following verses in Isaiah chapter 14. But the verses that you just specifically mentioned there, Isaiah chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, that speaks of the judgment that's going to come upon the kingdom, the empire of Babylon. Then it transitions to speaking against judgment to come against the spiritual power that animated or stood behind Babylon. So that's how I would answer that question for you there, um, GMS. Okay, uh, continuing on here, Tyler says, is it God's will to heal everyone right here and right now? People use Isaiah chapter 53 to say, by his stripes, we are healed. Tyler, I would say that I do not find biblical evidence that it's God's will to heal everyone immediately right here and right now. I just don't see that biblical evidence. Now, I do say this. Number one, God promises perfect healing to every believer. I think that's absolutely true. And that healing was provided for by the work of Jesus on the cross. By his stripes were healed, which I think is speaking both spiritually of healing, but it all has application to physical healing as well. That Isaiah chapter 53 passage. God promises perfect healing to every believer. We call it resurrection. That is God's ultimate perfect healing to every believer. Until then, we're going to have to live with some of the weaknesses and frailties of our flesh, if I could say, especially as we get older. Now, that's number one. But number two, I think it's also important to say this. There are no doubt some people who could be healed right here and right now, but are not healed because they don't have the faith to receive it from God. Now, notice I said some people. I don't believe that every person who is not healed is not healed because they lack faith. I don't believe that at all. I believe that is a doctrine of guilt and condemnation upon people that throws upon people so much despair and desperation that it has no part. It's not true biblically, and it's a destructive doctrine. But I don't think it can really be argued that there are at least some people right here and right now whom God would heal if they had the faith to receive it. I don't know who those people are. I don't know how many of them there are, but surely those people are out there. And so I think that we believe that God does heal today. 
We pray for God to heal today. We believe that God can and will heal today. There may be times when prompted by the Holy Spirit, we believe that no, God does want to heal someone right here, right now in a remarkable way. But, but we recognize that the complete healing that we all long for, that Jesus ultimately paid for, that's going to be ours in the resurrection. So I hope that helps you there, Tyler. Um, all right. I, I don't know if I can get through all of these questions here. It looks like there's a lot and we're kind of coming up to our time, but I'll go on for a little while longer here. Uh, GMS asks again, what part of the statue in Daniel 4 are we in? And what nation is ruling that part of the statue we're in? All right. Well, GMS, I, I got to tell you this. Again, whenever you're talking about biblical prophecy, eschatology, I always like to go almost overboard and say, this is something that many Christians have different opinions on. So the opinion that I'm going to give you right now, I, I don't want to act for a moment like it's some universal Christian opinion or that this is what the Bible says and nobody disputes it. No, th there is a lot of discussion and often disagreement about these things. But I'll give you my take because you're asking me the question. I believe that we are actually, um, huh. all right, the last part of the statue described in the book of Daniel, the last part of that statue was iron, and then the bottom part was iron mixed with clay. I believe that we are in a pause between the iron and the iron mixed with clay. That in the past, we see the iron of the Roman Empire that existed on the earth in the days of Jesus. And in the future, we see the empire designated by the feet and especially the toes, the um, iron mixed with clay. I believe that that is in the future. And I believe that the legs of iron are in the past. So if you want to get kind of flippant with it and say, David, the believes we're at the ankles in between the two. Well, OK, fine. I, I don't want to try to get that technical with it. But that, that's basically how I would explain that to you. My understanding of this um, GMS. OK, uh, Rhea both says um, when the prophet Isaiah was sent to Hezekiah, could it be that God was revealing to Hezekiah the trick of the devil or what is his destiny or that God really wanted to take away? Um, Rehoboth, I don't know if we can answer that in a categorical way. I would just say read through the passage, look through my commentary on that particular passage and go through it. Um, we commonly want to know did this come from God or did this come from the devil? That's a question we commonly ask. Did this come from God? Did this come from the devil? Now, I'm not going to say that that's a question that should never be asked, but I will say this. I think we ask that question more than we need to. Because often, instead of considering whether or not something came from God or came from the devil, we just need to realize here is the situation. God wants to use it for his glory, and Satan wants to use it for his purposes. 
How can we be used of God to see God's kingdom and purpose forwarded and, and move forward in a particular situation? So uh, that would be kind of the general answer I would give to you. And again, just go back to that passage. Maybe my commentary can be of some help to you in that regard. Um, Rose says, hello, Pastor David, will you be doing more Bible study videos? Well, um, about how to study the Bible? Um, maybe so. Um, I've got some ideas in mind for that. But really, my sweet spot is just teaching verse by verse through books of the Bible we're making our way through the book of Psalms on the YouTube channel. I know that right now we're just up to what, I know, Psalm 19, Psalm 20, whatever it is, somewhere around there. But I've already recorded more than a hundred of the Psalms, and we're just releasing them as we do the post-production, and uh, one or two of them a week we're releasing them. Um, so thank you, Andrea and Ruth, for uh, helping that. What Jorge says, I appreciate that. And like I say, Ruth, it's always great to see you. God bless you. Um, GMS says, also, is America in the Bible? I perceive that since it's the greatest kingdom known to man, it should be. If so, where is it in the Bible? Well, listen, I, I don't know if America is the greatest kingdom known to man. It depends how you measure a kingdom. And I, I could talk about that. Uh, so you wouldn't have to say, how are you measuring a kingdom if you would say that that uh, America is the greatest kingdom? OK, but decide that I simply don't see America clearly in biblical prophecy. We can talk about different reasons for that, but I, I just want to say that I don't see it there uh, in any clear way. OK, I think we're just kind of kind of summarize some of the end questions and listen. Um, I have uh, a few final ideas here um, just to conclude with. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll continue on. And listen, what we'll do is the questions that I didn't get to today, sorry about that, but we will um, save them, hopefully get to them in a pre-recorded question and answer some other time because I like to do those as well. Listen, before I go, I just want to say one more thing. I am speaking this to you on July the 9th here at about almost one o'clock now, uh, California time. And I just want to share a praise report with you. Uh, a few weeks ago, we received permission from a foundation uh, to, we had a matching funds grant given to us where we were given a very generous gift of 25,000, but we're only given the promise of the gift if our donors would contribute and match those funds. And I just want to praise the Lord for the generosity of uh, those who support Enduring Word. You guys had an amazing response to our matching funds campaign. And I'll just say this, we exceeded our goal in only 19 days. And I just think that that's a testimony both to the faithfulness of the Lord, number one, uh, but then also just to the kindness and the generosity of those who support the work of Enduring Word uh, online. So I just want to say thank you, and I want to give glory to God for that. Uh, we are going to keep the link to our matching funds campaign open until the end of this week, just because we, we found in the past that there's always some people who want to contribute, even though the goal's already been met. I, 
God bless them for that. Maybe they like seeing the number go up. I sure like seeing the number go up. But that is a blessing from God that we're very grateful for. So thank you. Thank you for your ongoing prayers for our work. Just this morning, I had some wonderful conversations with some people in the Arabic-speaking world about promoting the Arabic commentary uh, among Arabic-speaking believers and seekers, and that really excites me because these translations that we do, especially now the significant translation work that we've done in Arabic and in Chinese, but also in Spanish and all the other languages that we've done works in, we love to see those get out to people and for people to know about them and use them if they find them helpful. So God bless you and thank you for tuning in to this, whether it's live or later. Uh, glad you could join me today. God bless you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.